Welcome to the Big Beatles Sort Out, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production. I will be assisted in this venture by my brother and resident Beatles expert, Paul Abbott, with a deep knowledge of the Beatles and the wider context in which they operated. Each episode we will explore and score five songs from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. The songs will be drawn at random to try and avoid any favourite album or era prejudices skewing the results as we go along. Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out The Beatles. Welcome listeners to episode three and welcome again Paul, my Beatle guru. How are things? Hello, hello. Things are fine. I've just realised you say that I'm your resident Beatles expert, but I'm not resident, am I? I don't live with you. No, no. But um, if you imagine this podcast as a house... Oh, okay. I'll do that. That's that's the best way to conceptually conceptually resident. As always, I'm going to start you off with a Beatles question. So, are you prepared? Uh, as much as I'll ever be. Okay. If you could own just one instrument associated with the Beatles, i.e., Paul's violin, bass, or Ringo's bongos, what would it be? It would probably be uh, George's Stratocaster. I think. I don't, would I want the Stratocaster or the Telecaster? I think I'd like the Stratocaster when he'd first done it up as Rocky, you know, painted it in all the colours. Is that the, the Stratocaster he used on fixing a hole? It would be, yes. See, so once again, you've got the answer correct. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> you haven't got a Strat, have you? No. No. Well, we can't all be perfect. Um, anyway, first on the random playlist today is Julia. What I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you, Julia Paul, Julia I think this is our first solo Beatle performance, isn't it, that we've done so far? I mean, we're only on episode three And there's not many where it's just one Beatle But this is just one Beatle and one guitar, albeit overdubbed a couple of times to give it a little sort of double-tracking stereo effect. It was on the White Album, which came out in November of 1968. It was recorded in one session on October 13th of October 1968. About three takes worth of, of run-throughs. It's one that's been sort of looked at in the box set and in the anthology as well, the different versions, with Lennon working it out. And it's... One of the ones that's famously Donovan credits, I was going to say credits himself, well, he sort of does, I suppose, of Donovan was on the Rishikesh retreat with the Beatles and all the other folks as well, and apparently introduced Lennon to this finger-picking style, or introduced all of them to it, and it was Lennon who sort of got into it and wrote this and Dear Prudence, apparently. So so Donovan has laid claim to this as as being a big influence on this song. For music, then, for for my summarisation, I was with a lot of the White Album. Um, I think Julia is an idea that if it had come at another time in their career, may have been further developed and explored. Like you said, it is just his voice double-tracked um, and his guitar double-tracked mm-hmm. with the finger-picking. Um, so it just appears in its kind of almost completely raw form. Um, but it's a, it's a charming chord progression with quite an earnest and um, if breathy melody over it. But there's not much else musically to report on, really, because it is what it is. And so there's there's little variation. 
I, mean, I, I like it, but I like other acoustic and vocal-based songs quite a lot more, such as uh, um, Here Comes the Sun that we covered in the last episode. And I know that has extra layers of production, but at its heart, it's voice and guitar, isn't it? It is. Um, so I like it, but for the music, Julia gets 61. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I've not missed anything in the produ- in the um, music. It is just two voices, two guitars, isn't it? It is, really? yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a similar story for production, um, as in, because there isn't really a huge amount to get the musical teeth into. So I guess any engineer who could capture a guitar and voice could have produced this, really. You don't really need the genius of George Martin for it. But there's more to production than just simply facilitating the technical as well. And you don't know how much, because obviously we weren't there and, and we haven't heard the tapes, how much of George's musical skill as a, a person who's an, a, an arranger who's been a, who's been in charge of ensembles who has to also coax a performance out of a musician how much that he was there encouraging John whilst John was trying this actually quite tricky for him finger picking stuff so we we don't know but you're, you're more or less right I think it's more about facilitating just capturing a nice a nice performance on guitar and performance of the voice and that's all it is get the right mic in the right place um, so the production gets a standard 51 for me because I think it, it's just it's getting a take, really, of his song. Um, so on to the lyrics. And um, do you, go on, do you want to fill us in a bit on the lyrics as you were alluded to in the introduction? Yeah, well, it's called Julia. And most people will know that John Lennon lost his mother when she was only in sort of early 40s. It was in 1958. And obviously a massively significant impact on him, as it would be for anyone personally but it was one of many losses he, he felt quite early on absences and losses that sh- shaped his world view and so this is about julia lennon who was killed in 1958 as they was run over just as he was basically getting to know her again because she'd given him away well, not given him away she put him into the care of her sister his auntie mimi mm. and so it's ostensibly about his looking back to her but it's also interwoven with the sort of imagery about yoko as well so the the ocean child stuff is all about yoko and some of the phrasing and wording is sort of these little i don't want to say captions that's not quite the right word sort of phrases that she would use or the language she would use as well so it's i mean you can you can psychoanalyze it quite a lot because lennon tended to have this strange thing with yoko that he would call her mother as well and that's a whole other podcast for people who are much better at that sort of stuff than, than I think we are. But yeah, I think it's all interwoven. But essentially, it's about his his mother and try to remember her. It's another Lennon song where the lyrics do a lot of the work. Um, it is it is great. I like how he starts up off early on for a song that's actually one of his most earnest ones, where he says half of what he says is meaningless. Yes, which for a lot of his songs would be true. But in this case, a lot of what he's saying is is full of meaning, isn't it? Um, it's got yeah, it's got some lovely passages in it, taking us to a wistful seafront on a soft breeze. Oh, very nice. I sc- I score the lyrics seventy, giving um, Julia an overall average of sixty point seven. Next up, uh, and we are going big Lennon here, is I am the Warus. Paul, I am the Warus. 
yes, a psychedelic masterpiece from 1967. So it's recorded in September to November 1967. We've clearly got an orchestra on there, 16-piece ensemble put on it. We've got the Mike Sams singers adding the vocal effects alongside the band as well. We've got the famous radio broadcast tune-in as well. It was the B-side of the Hello Goodbye single, which came out in 1968. And so strange that this is a B-side. Yeah, but of course, it obviously featured in the Magical Mystery Tour film as one of the absolute highlights of that you know, TV movie and yeah. is on the, the Magical Mystery Tour EP and later LP as well. Okay. I mean, where to begin? <laughs> I mean, this is the psychedelic rock song, isn't it, really? Uh, anything else that follows a kind of a pale imitation. Uh, I, I, so much credit has to go to George Martin here for that tapestry of layers that you've mentioned, all those different elements that are weaving in and, in and around Lennon's melody and and the boys' kind of solid groove. Yeah, well, I think well, the interesting thing there is, is I don't think George Martin at the time was particularly keen on the song while he was doing it. <laughs> so the fact that he was able to sort of wrangle it all together, and, and that's even without discussing the various challenges for actually putting together the mixes that were required for the various formats and, and versions, it's... Yeah, there is sort of reports that he wasn't too keen on it, but you wouldn't tell by the end because it, it comes out as this thing. Although, I, you know, it's psychedelic, but it's it doesn't feel Summer of Love. It feels a much darker sort of psychedelic. Yeah, it's maybe maybe um, four, five o'clock in the morning uh, after the Summer of Love when everything's taken a bit of a sharp downturn yeah. and you're lost in, the, in a field wondering how you got there. Perhaps it is, but it's, it's psychedelic and it, it, it's perhaps one of the few songs... That really does capture the um, the uneasiness of of um, psychedelics. Yeah, <laughs> that feeling. You know, it's it's, but also it's just such a good song as well as all that. I mean, it, you take away the added effects and the the strangeness of it. It's it's just a really good rock song as well. Yeah, I think that's important because at the at the core of it, they're performing this song. Yeah, it's it's a, a brilliant performance to actually do. The, the, the spine of the thing so yeah it's a it's a perfect blend of composition imagination and energy and very interesting to hear that um martin didn't perhaps rate it at the time given what it's gone on to become to a lot of people i mean i've got to go high on this because when i started listening to this i just thought oh well, i mean i'm gonna have to deal with this every now and again songs like this popping up and you just think it's gonna have to go high um so it's it's um otherwise this is all for nothing mm -hmm. so i'm scoring the music to this 91 wow um yes yeah, just the groove as well as everything else and the production which we will now talk about i mean we could fill a whole episode talking about the production on oh this. yeah you could do so, tons yeah i mean you could probably fill a series but i'm going to start with my my the, i'll start with my only general criticism um just to find something to start with in that i sometimes wish it was just a little meatier and a little heavier at its core it's one tiny problem aside because other than that the kind of mind-bending strings that kind of lull and pull you through the sections are just a work of genius and also these overall tone shifts that can happen between the middle eight and the outro it's like martin's got sort of like sonic wallpaper or something that strips back and adds on texture in a way that kind of you know is perplexing you know it's always got a different um sheen over the top of it at, at, at times well think about as well that george martin as a 
everyone talks about his ability as a comedy producer from his time at Parlophone with the various comedy records that he's made and his ability to handle sound effects and things like that. And you generally think of it in terms of if you do sound effects, if you do special musical effects, it's it's comedy. I don't think I Am The Warriors is comedy, but it uses a lot of those skills, I think, to control the, the choir and, and do the weird musical effects that he, he developed as a comedy record producer. Yeah, all all these little novelty editions of radio recordings and laughter and chants and whatnot—they're just they they they're out of Martin's playbook, aren't they? Like you say, and they they, they work brilliantly with this. Um, anyway, there's just too much to say about it, so I'm going to shut up now and score the production ninety-two. Wow. Um, on to the lyrics. Um, I mean, I love that this is a nonsense song, uh, and as far as I know, Lennon never tried to claim otherwise. Well, he, he could get a bit contrary about it. And obviously, they, it's one of the conceptual continuities of the Beatles is born in I Am The Walrus, isn't it? Because he refers back to it in other things. Yes. And obviously, over the years, people have said, who was the walrus? And then they sort of try to add an extra layer of meaning about the Lewis Carroll walrus and the carpenter thing. Yeah. And Lennon himself said, oh, I should have been the carpenter because the walrus is actually the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, but it sort of doesn't matter and it's also based on a schoolyard rhyme it's a mishmash of lennon's brain drawing on things that he's he's half remembered or taught to mates about or got from books he's picking up words and phrases that sound good to the ear isn't he they fit the rhyme and the meter and he's twisting and he's playing with them like like putty you know he throws in a lyrical hook with the kind of warus and the eggman and a bit of actual just nonsense sounds with the goo goo gajoobs and somehow unbelievably he ends up with a masterpiece i think that's the skill isn't it talking of which can we settle once and for all paul that the lyric is actually goo goo gajoo yeah i was about to ask you to address this because it's one of the things that annoys me and it always has is because everyone says oh cuckoo kachoo it's like it's like it's goo goo gajoo and the reason you know that is because it's in the bloody lyrics printed in the booklet with the with the ep Oh, does it actually, is it actually in the original ep booklet as well yeah apart so. from the fact it's evidently what he sings yeah I'll, I'll brook no cuckoo kachoos. Um, anyway, I'm scoring the lyrics 90, which gives an overall of 91. And at this point in time, before finishing the, the last couple of songs, puts I Am The Warrus at number one in the rankings. Ooh. Oh, hang on. Well, um, uh, the trousers. That must be the Ruttles klaxon. It's the Ruttles klaxon. What's happening? Explain. What the Ruttles klaxon represents is when we've got a song in the Ruttles repertoire drawn from the choice that comes out of the bag. And it might be one song, it might be a bit of a song, it might be, you know, because the Ruttles stuff isn't literally a takeoff of everything, except that this is definitely one that is, it's a direct takeoff of it. And there's a Ruttles song on the original album and in the film called Piggy in the Middle, which is a direct pastiche of I Am the Warrus. even down to the fact that the feature version in the Ruttles so-called tragical history tour film, <laughs> film within a film, is basically doing the same thing as the video. It was even shot on the same airfield, albeit in a right. slightly different area. But uh, yeah, it's it's a brilliant pastiche, even though it's one of the most direct and obvious ones that the Ruttles ever did. Yes, it's it is a very direct, um, with only 
only the the slightest of changes to chords to make it not almost <laughs> the same in certain parts. Yeah. Um, on another day, it could be actually be what Lennon came out with. It's 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 so good in the, in its kind of capturing of the mood and the uh, the style of the piece, isn't it? But it also does what the Ruttles does quite well, which is it skewers the sort of cultural yeah. pomposity that's built up around these things like I am the Warus by having a chorus that ends with the line do a poo poo. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's great. But it's got lines like one man's civilization is another man's jungle, yeah, which is sufficiently sort of grand and meaningless at the same time. Yeah, he, he really nails it in, in in those parts, doesn't he? It's actually slightly heavier than I am the Warus in is it is in places, which is yes. what I was saying about the production is that um is that this this has that slightly thicker low end, you know? But then they had the um, benefit of modelling it rather than doing it for the first time, I guess. And uh, Piggy in the middle does have a backwards recorded voice in it as well. What's it saying? I think it says this little piggy went to market. Yes, yeah, it's very funny, and it's uh, um, also very good. You know, it's not just a silly. It is a silly take off of it, but it's actually a good bit of music. Um, okay, then on with the next song, which is stepping back in time now, significantly, to I Feel Fine. Baby's good to me, you know she's happy as can be, you know she said so. I'm in love with her and I feel fine. Paul, I Feel Fine. So, yeah, a single from 1964, recorded on a few dates in October and November. Fairly straightforward in, in many respects. It came out on the 27th of November, 1964. It was the, the, accompanied by She's a Woman on the B-side, a song which for years I'd only ever heard on the, the little transistor radio in a scene in the Help movie. That's a story for when this comes that comes out, really. It was on the charts for 13 weeks. It was number one for five weeks. It's essentially accompanying the Beatles for Sale album as a single. And it's just a brilliant rock song with one or two quite standout features in it. Yeah, I mean, it's a catchy riff, a memorable melody, Paul's bouncy bass, some great backing vocals. And um, best of all for me, listening back to it, is um, Ringo's shuffling snare and cymbal, especially his snare work in this is brilliant. Well, my big note for this is just Ringo's drums because I've always loved yeah. it because it's almost doing like a like a Latin bossa nova thing on it. It for a rock band where it could just be four to the floor. Yeah, and it's solid, solid rock pop, and I'm giving it um, I'm giving it 63 for music, which is in no way a ref- I mean it's a, it's a good score. Um, it's it's just because of the era. It's it is what it is, and I like it, and it, and I, it put me very much in mind of Day Tripper, which I kind of use as a bit of a reference zone for it. Um, production wise, um, this is if I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows this by now, but the very first bit of feedback purposefully done. On well, track, I mean, there's always, there's always an argument that someone else has done it and you have to, all you have to do is listen to some earlier records and you'll hear heavily distorted things. Mm. They talk about this specific use of controlled feedback for a definite purpose. So essentially what's happened here is in the studio at some point, Lennon's rested his um, acoustic, semi-acoustic guitar on on his amp but yeah. the amp's not being turned down and at some point Paul McCartney hits his bass guitar it sets off a sort of sympathetic vibration causing a, a feedback loop yeah. to which the Beatles was like magic 
Yeah, well, the, what's that sound? To the engineers, it was like, what's happening? Yeah. But of course... They must have known about it, though. The engineers would have known that would happen if you did that kind of yeah, thing. But they, they, they never were, thought of recording it. Yeah, exactly, because it was an undesirable thing. But yeah. Lennon being Lennon and the Beatles being the Beatles, it's like, well, can we have that, please? And I, I think you're right. Um, like you say, with it being controlled, because it does... It surges, it comes out, and then it kind of hits the beat. And I don't know if you were to put a click track behind it, if it would actually seem to be completely in time. I don't know. It feels like it is anyway. It's great. It's mm. it's one of those nice, happy chances in the studio that just leads to giving this song something unique about it, you know, something different to the other singles, something that marks it out. Yeah. And then it just goes into this great guitar riff. And I love the... Um, George's little solo in this as well, which is quite simple, but it's just perfect for the song as well. Yeah. I, um, just another note on the um, intro as well. If if you listen carefully, you can hear it rattling the snare. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. It gives you that ambience of the act being in the actual room, doesn't it? Um, it also feels like a near-perfect take to me. I can't detect any, any fluffs or any feeling like, oh, they should have picked it up a bit or anything. It's... No, you know, it, a, the second guitar is a little bit low in the mix. It's, you know, you have to really listen to hear it if you're trying to pick it out. But it's there and it's filling in a few gaps. So I'm going to give the production a score of 64 because it's with a little boost, thanks to the pioneering use of feedback, whether they were the first or not, they used it very well. Um, On to lyrics. We're kind of into standard fare when it comes to the lyrics, really. Choose a phrase. In this case, I feel fine. And then list some things that rhyme and are kind of vaguely related to that theme and love. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of buying things around this time, isn't there? With a, and your bird can sing and this, and you can't buy me love, which although that's a bit of a opposite of the idea, it still uses that notion to fuel the lyrics. It kind of doesn't matter because of the whole song, but, but taking them in isolation, yeah, they, they don't make any great waves, do they? It does no. the job. I'm only giving it 43 for the lyrics because it, it kind of does the job. It doesn't do it badly, but it only, it just, it just does it. Um, anyway, the, it gets an overall of 56.7. So next, we've got I've Got a Feeling. Paul, I've Got a Feeling. <laughs> if you're worried about it, go to the doctor. <laughs> Paul. Sorry, sorry. It's okay. Paul, I've got to... I can't... I've got to say, <laughs> just just, put to, just start fun, talking. Just put in the funny take and leave that. Okay. Oh, dear. Yes, I've got a feeling we're back... See, I'm talking about this like we're going backwards and forwards, like we're in the TARDIS, and it works. We're in 1969 now, mm. in uh, January, February 1969. Billy Preston is with us again on electric piano. And this yep. is a song that ends up on the Let It Be album, which comes out in May of 1970. Obviously, that album is officially produced by Phil Spector, but mm. this song is really done by George Martin and Glyn Johns for when it's recorded, anyway. And I think the great thing about this song, and there's a lot of great stuff about this song, this is one of my favourite late-era ones, Yeah, is it's a Lennon-McCartney collaboration, which there wasn't masses of particularly no. after the early days but it's two songs joined together they've got independent songs they've come together figured out how to join them together and turned it into this rocker yeah it's 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 a, a collaboration in as much as they thought well these two work together 
Um, and then they do. They definitely do, don't they? Yeah. I think, um, although I, I mean, I still think of it primarily as a Paul song because he, because he kicks it off. And I think I once saw, I don't know if you ever saw this, I think it was Lenny Henry doing a stand-up routine where he talked possibly about God accidentally putting the voice of a black soul singer into Paul McCartney. Have you ever seen that? Oh, I think I have seen that. Rings a bell, actually. It's, but... a, it's an old memory from from something. You know, it's Lenny Henry doing stand-up for a start. But this is this is what he was talking about when he was doing this. You know, for the most part, this is Paul giving it a hell of a lot of soul in the main vocal. Yeah. You know, R and B and the bass as well. He's playing it. He's playing such a, a given that funky it's such. Kind I of... mean, in terms of its actual what what happens in the music, it's there's not many chords in it. No. You know, you have that funny A&D, little semi semitonal bit where they go and da 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 stuff. That makes it sound completely wrong. I know what I'm talking about. I know the bit you mean. Um, but mainly, yeah, it's just A to D. And again, it's the Beatles were not sophisticated guitarists at the best no. of times, but they were good guitarists for what they were doing. So they do this mm. thing where you plant your hand on the A shape on the on the guitar, and then you just, just move it up. Don't you, you just drop a couple of extra fingers on to turn it into a D. So you get this sort of oh so for the for the main the main a to d kind yeah of, for the main sort of yeah. riff of or the chord pattern for this and that's that's the basis of the majority of the song yeah but so but stick billy preston on do a good bass groove yeah you get a great song and the the, the guitar licks so um, that harrison's doing as well yeah you know he's, those he's little flourishes he's, for the want of a better word he's funking it up which oh, is yeah. um which is straight out of motown really you know this this is so could it so easily be repackaged as a um, as a Motown hit, um, but until John's counter melody comes in and gives us a reminder, this is actually the Beatles as well um, from his half of the composition, um, and also gives the song a reason to keep on going beyond a couple of minutes. I think without it, you would have been yeah. thinking, where did it go? And it just gives it something else, a more momentum. Um, it picks it up, um, and it's just a lot of quite raw fun because of the way it's been you know recorded which we'll talk about but pushed on by all that live energy i'm going to give it 82 for the music nice um and it's hard to talk about this song and the music and the production without them being intertwined because it's tricky isn't it it's, it's a live take it really I'm, unless i'm wrong here essentially yeah and uh, it's a song that they rehearsed plenty and mm. when they finally get round to releasing whatever box set version of of the let it be album get back sessions which you would assume would be this year but we don't know i'm sure we'll have lots of evidence of that beyond what exists already but it's from the rooftop isn't it the recording that most people will have heard yeah yeah it is and it's but it's a rocker you know it's what they were trying to do it was one of the ones that actually more or less sticks to that principle that they they had let's get back to basics yeah so I mean, I don't know if I wish they'd have done a studio version of this. I mean, would it have been better? Or I think it, the thing is, the history behind the song and where and when it was performed should really excuse it from any criticism. I mean, it, it, it carries in the recording more than just the music, doesn't it? It, it carries that event. Um, but it is a live take. So from a production point of view and all the raw energy it brings, it does, it does mean it can't ever really be as crisp as kind of a, a clean studio production which and with all the tricks that you can have with that. But it's on a rooftop, so, you know, well done to them. It's not the first place you'd think about recording a song. So I'm going to give it 61 for production. Right Um Lyrics, I mean, as we spoke about, um, 
the main Paul section of the song is kind of a classic soul line, almost gospel, isn't it? it you know, the I've got a feeling, you know, yeah, it grows definitely. and grows. It's just something you can belt out and play around with just just as much as you need to. It's it's a slight lyric in the fact that there's not much to it, but it's good. And then John comes along with his everybody section, you know, his everybody yeah. variations and pushes pushes the song up in the score for me as far as lyrics go. Um, especially given the context in which this is, this was being recorded. I mean, the Let It Be sessions and the, the hard year that he talks about in the opening line. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he had a hard year. Again, it's, it's easy to overstate meaning when you're looking at people's lyrics but i think this is one way you, you can't like so you can't really divorce it from the setting in which it's being produced and made particularly for john whereas paul can quite happily make songs where he just whoops and hollers all the way through and says nothing and means nothing and still come out great john tended to want to say something by this point it, yeah. yeah even if it meant that you'd write something that was really contrary and you yeah. know or cruel even in some cases but uh yeah i think this is it's an interesting counterpoint to the the whooping and hollering. Yeah, it's good. They 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 blend together perfectly. Um, I'm scoring the lyrics a respectable sixty-seven, mm-hmm. which gives I've got a feeling an overall average of seventy. So last up, we have the fool on the hill. Day after day. Alone on a hill The man with the foolish grin Is keeping perfectly still But nobody wants to know him So Paul, the fool on the hill We're back to Magical Mystery Tour again So we've had two Mystery Tour songs In this selection of five So this is recorded over the same sort of period As uh, as I Am The Warrus Over sort of September to November 1967 ends up on the Magical Mystery Tour EP and album. And obviously it's in the film as well, in a section where Macca just takes a camera, goes abroad, makes shoots a load of footage. I mean, the thing to remember here, because everything's out of context as individual songs, is, of mm. course, Mystery Tour happens after the death of Brian Epstein. And they're yeah. all a bit rudderless. And McCartney's trying to take charge of things, and that might include him just going, well, I'll do this bit by just going off somewhere and doing something because he'd clearly rather be doing something so he felt like something was happening than sitting and pondering but it's a he also produces this remarkably reflective song in terms of whether you want to again whether you want to apply the the lyrics on a personal level that's something we can get on to but in terms of actually the the music for this you've got a nice different sort of setup it's the Beatles doing different jobs a little bit like they were doing on Pepper occasionally. You've got McCartney on his piano, adding then some bass and guitars, playing recorder himself, I think, or certainly at least a harmonica, probably. Lennon and Harrison both playing harmonicas, doing a bit of guitar, George's, and I think Lennon's possibly playing a Jew's harp, a little boing, 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 boing noise thing. Oh, yeah. And Ringo's just doing all the nice little percussive touches, including little finger cymbals things uh, and then we have three flautists brought in to actually do do the stuff so yeah mccartney will be doing the recorders i think but the, the you always got the flautists on top of that as well it's great to be back with paul with another melancholic haunting mysterious masterpiece i love fool on the hill um 
And like you're saying about Magical Mystery Tour, I think it, that with it being another one from the Magical Mystery Tour, I think that album never gets the credit it deserves because it's a soundtrack album. And it's quite brief when you take off the singles that were released, I think, in the American version. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the EP version is very short, you know, uh, relatively speaking. So like with the Yellow Submarine in its original form, I think it gets it gets short shrift and it shouldn't. No, because, I mean, we've already had I Am The Walrus and seen how big that is. I mean, I know it's in my, in, in my estimation, but I don't. I think that's pretty reflective of most people. And then you put um, Fool on the Hill on the same album and you realise just what an amazing collection and period that was. Um, especially when you start bundling the singles in there, you know, the post-Pepper singles that would have been around at this time. Um, but, I mean, musically anyway, like you've said about the all the added layers, it's it's more of a, it feels more of an orchestrated song than a pop song. Um, it's nice to hear they're all playing their part in it, though, um, with Paul's piano kind of leading the way and um, and all sorts of those, all those different instruments and bits flaring up here and there. Um, I love it. I'm giving it 87 for the music. Mm. Um, production wise um, I mean George Martin could work with anything seemingly you know we, we've had him playing off novelty sounds against heavy rock earlier and now we have him working with Paul and the, the rest of them to create a wistful kind of playful soundscape using this kind of assortment of um, instruments that perhaps you wouldn't always hear together some traditional you know um, mm. along with the with the the, the rock and pop um, setup and the, the bass and the drums um, it's great and it almost literally has all the bells and whistles. Yes. Um, and what I'm guessing now from you saying that was harmonica, I thought there was a kind of a backwards accordion, but is it? I think it's, it's just, it's harmonicas, yeah. And the, the flutes, the flute plays the solo, doesn't it? It takes the solo. So the recorder plays that solo and the flutes do little sort of answering pas- passages to that alongside it. Brilliant. I mean, who would have thunk it? You know, a recorder taking the solo on a Beatles record. You know, next time your kids are complaining about being taught the recorder, they could do worse than to play them this. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go 89 for the production. Uh, leaving us just with the lyrics to talk about. I mean, who is the fool on the hill? What is what is it that he wants to do that makes people not like him? And the mysterious, almost paganistic panpipes and prancing around on a tour somewhere feel to this is just wonderful. Um, in a way, I don't really care what it's actually about because yeah. I have the fool, a fool on the hill character in my head, a kind of a pan-like demigod creature that skulks knowingly away in the hillocks. Ooh, um, skulking in the hillocks. You want to be careful doing that. But you you said at the beginning, and I shied away from it a bit when I was thinking about it, thinking, no, I don't think he is talking about himself. But is he? Is he possibly? Well, is there being a no, case I made for that? There's always a case for McCartney being in McCartney's songs, but very often it's overstated and I don't know that he's doing anything other than talking about again as we've mentioned in other songs the sort of universal condition of of your behavior and how you think about yourself and that sort of stuff sometimes but yeah there's been different people say suggesting different things for this including a lot of the inner circle so like um, Alistair Taylor who was Brian Epstein's assistant says that him and, and Paul McCartney were out for a walk on Primrose Hill in North London and a man appeared before them, but suddenly vanished, apparently. So quite what he means by suddenly vanished, I don't know. So that led into Alistair Taylor and, and McCartney having a, a chat about the existence of God, which supposedly led him to write The Fool on the Hill. Uh. 
but and there's so many recollections for different things, different stories about different things by by the inner circle of Beatles people that you know it's usually an amalgam of several things anyway. Yeah. So, as I say, I don't mind what it's what it's about because I just love the images it it, it conjures up, um, and I'm going to give it the lyrics 88, which gives the actual whole song an overall of 88 as well. Nice. So that's us done. So shall we see what difference that's made to the leaderboard? Please do. I'm interested. At number 15, we have You're Going to Lose That Girl. At number 14, we have Yes It Is. At number 13, You Won't See Me. At number 12, You Really Got a Hold on Me. A new entry at number 11, I Feel Fine. Another new entry at number 10, Julia. At number 9, The Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill. And at number eight, Day Tripper. At number seven, Old Brown Shoe. And going in at number six, I've got a feeling. At number five, Something. At number four, Here Comes the Sun. At number three, Fixing a Hole. New in at number two, The Fool on the Hill. And new in at number one, I Am the Wars. This is already quite a mad, (laughs) mad set of songs. It is um, as a fifteen-track album. You wouldn't you wouldn't put these together, would you? No. Thanks for listening again, and please do join us next episode for the next five random songs. And thank you again, Paul. Are you up to anything that you'd like to uh, report on? Nothing in particular, except to keep encouraging people to listen to the Head Ballet Pod and hear whatever it is my latest guest has brought along to discuss in the world of novelty music. Indeed, and by the time. People are hopefully listening to this. You should have quite a few more of those under the belt. You've got five or six out at the time of recording, so there should be a, yep. a few more by then, shouldn't there? And mm-hmm. they're all very interesting and an enjoyable foray into the world of novelty madness. Thanks, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>